when I see you now, I mean, you're a freaking boss in every sense of the word. Like you just, you carry this thing. Like you, you're calm. You never get flustered. Have you always been like this? Were you like destined for glory? The, the there thing is a quote that's above, um, the doorways that exits both of my kids' bedrooms. They're adults now. So one's married and out and one's in college, but the quote above the door, um, says, both faith and fear require you believing something you cannot see. You choose. Welcome to another week, another episode of Level Up with Matt Rogers. I am your host, Matt Rogers, and uh, it's a real honor to be here. As always, my sidekick, co-producer, engineer, Eli Adelman. Hey. Look at you. Look at you. You feeling good today? I'm feeling great today, man. I'm pumped, and I'm branded, as you can see right now, with Prolanthropy. I will tell you this about Prolanthropy. Outside of this podcast, in fact, before this podcast, Prolanthropy was a, or is a partner of mine. Uh, I do a lot of events with them. If you guys follow me on social media, sometimes you'll see me with some professional athletes. That is hands down because of this company, Prolanthropy. And I am pumped to tell you that today we have the founder, the CEO, the man who started it all. Jeff Ginn is in the house with us tonight. Jeff, are you there? Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. I got into my hosting routine. I said tonight, but it's actually today. Kind of feels like tonight, though. <laughs> feels like tonight. Thank you so much for coming today. Honestly, it means it means a lot that you come on because typically what, what people don't know at home is a lot of aspects I call you boss. Like, I want you to hire me because these are your athletes. These are your events. And I'm kind of the hired help. You bring me in as the MC, the auctioneer. And for me, I hope you already know this, but it is the highlight of my life in so many times. Like being an ex-football player, being around the people that I idolize, that I once was and I still want to be like, and you're the one that puts me in the room with them. So as a guy that you hire, thank you so much. I appreciate you, man. It's a very mutually beneficial relationship. I appreciate you saying that. You're like, you got this thing about you where I always like, I want to make dad proud. I want to make you proud. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll let you call my kids after this and you can tell them that. I, I will. Dude, your son and your wife are first class. I've talked to your daughter a little bit, but I've talked to your son the most and your wife probably the most because she actually goes to the events. Your son, I've never really seen him at any event. Yeah. Yeah. He's the IT guy here. So uh, we don't let him go on the road. So, okay. So let's go back to the beginning. Like, were you... So when I see you now, I mean, you're a freaking boss in every sense of the word. Like you just, you carry this thing, like you, you're calm. You never get flustered. Have you always been like this? Were you like destined for glory? The, the thing that I like about you is, is you took an idea and you took a passion and you made it a business. And I know there's so many listeners out there that have an idea, have a passion, but they go to jobs that they hate, work with people that they can't stand, they're underappreciated, they're underpaid, and they just kind of live life by default instead of design. And that's not you. So can you kind of take me to the beginning of how all of this started? Yeah. So, you know, I think we almost have to go back to the beginning of my time sure. uh, to tell you how this all started. So as you know, Matt, uh, we've talked about this before. I was given up at birth by an unwed 15-year-old teenage mom. Um, 
and uh, I was in foster care for the better part of a year, was adopted by a family that um, my adopted mom and dad both had blonde hair, blue eyes. And then right after they adopted me, they had two boys that both had blonde hair, blue eyes. And so um, back in the 70s, you know, 1971 to be specific, um, it wasn't cool to be adopted. You know, that was pre-Brad and Angelina and adoption wasn't cool. Uh, and right. kids were really mean and adults were really cruel. And as I've told you before, I can remember people saying things to my dad in front of me about my mom messing around with the postman. Okay. And so, you know, and so almost in every aspect of my life in my family life, I didn't fit in, but the only place that no one cared that I was adopted, that I was in foster care, that I didn't look like my family was on the sports field because no one that's, looked alike. That's true. And as you and I have talked, winning and being good almost transcends everything else. And so sure. I was a pretty good athlete. And so no one cared that, hey, Jeff doesn't look like his mom and his dad and his brothers. Um, and so, you know, I'm five foot nine on a good day and 200 plus pounds on a great day. Uh, and so I was never going to play collegiate sports like you. And I certainly was never going to play professional sports like our clients. And so the business side of sports is where I was going to have to be if I wanted to continue fitting in on the field sure. after high school. And so after a long you know, career journey, uh, well into my early 30s, I did, had an opportunity to um, create a company with a couple of guys Uh, one being a former professional athlete that did a lot of great community things. And we created this company to do what Prolanthropy does now. Now that company went by the wayside a long, long time ago. So that was like the stepping stone to Prolanthropy? Yeah. And so that company did a whole host of things with professional athletes. Philanthropy was only one. I actually was the guy that ran the philanthropy business. And so literally what we do at Prolanthropy is an offshoot of what I did there. Um, and so for me, the business side of professional sports, really the marketing side of professional sports has always intrigued me. You know, you and I have had this discussion, Mm -hmm. uh, for some reason, people think that seven up tastes better than Sprite because Larry Bird says so, right? (laughs) Larry Bird was one of the greatest basketball players of all time, but we've both seen how Larry Bird dressed. His taste is highly questionable. <laughs> and sure. why do I think that something's better because Larry said so? Well, because Larry's on TV and yep. he's the greatest, you know, uh, of all time. And so the idea that people are moved to action by something a professional athlete or a celebrity said was right. very intriguing. But when I saw that layer up, on top of philanthropy, mm-hmm. that was the game changer. And so, you know, I tell a story. So what do you mean like the, the layer up, meaning what? What's the layer up? What do you mean? Well, so let me explain. So you and I could easily take a child mm-hmm. down to lens crafters and buy that child a pair of glasses. Right. The reality is, is that by the time that prescription is no longer valid or the glasses break, that child's forgotten about who you and I are. Sure. Von Miller gives that kid a pair of glasses. They're telling that story to their grandkids in 50 years. That's the layer up is it's not just about the what it's the who. And, and so I saw that very early on is that, wow, 
it's one thing for a child to get something they don't have, but to get something they don't have from their hero is a life changing experience. I was going to say too, and, and for those of you that don't know who Von Miller is, he's a linebacker for the Denver Broncos. He's, uh, I don't have the stats in front of me, but made the Pro Bowl numerous times. He was a Super Bowl MVP, which is huge for a defensive lineman to get Super Bowl MVP. And he's basically one of the gods in Denver and hands down the backbone of their defense when they're good. So like Jeff said, if Von Miller gives a, pair, a kid a pair of glasses, it's got much more sticking power. How do you... How did you take like your passion, like going back a little bit? So you got to where you're at because of that failure, right? And most of us, when we fail, it's kind of like we chalk it up. We gave a shot, we missed, and we just go about life. What is it about you that you saw that failure? And then it, you know, we, we talk, we hear these motivational speakers, people talk like, oh, it's the failures that got me to the success. But how do you do that? What did you do? Yeah. So I, it probably goes back to the very beginning you know, I've never really been afraid of failure. Um, you know, I think from a mental standpoint, when you come to the realization that the one person in life, your mother, didn't want you, hmm. what do you have to lose? Wow. And so for me, you know, I was never afraid of asking out the best looking girl in high school. I mean, what's the worst thing she could say? No, I've, I've already had the worst thing that can happen to me. I've been abandoned. So how much worse can it be? So I never thought that failure was a big big risk. Um, you know, and so for me, I've never been afraid of that. Can I, I mean, can I ask you this? Because I mean, I had a phenomenal mom, like the best part of, of me is, is my mom and the way I was brought up with, with confidence and the stuff that she spoke over me, you had the exact opposite. Why, how come you can take rejection at the youngest age birth and turn it into confidence and actually one of the, 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 thing that spearheads you to greatness and some other people walk around rejected their whole life and they never do anything. What is that? Is it your mental state? Is it God? Is it sometimes it happens? Sometimes, like, what is it? Yeah, it's all of those things. Um, I've kind of always thought that, you know, bad things happen to everybody. No one's immune and you can either be a victor or a victim. And that was my choice. It wasn't my choice to, be born to an unwed teenage mom. And it wasn't my choice to be adopted by a family that looked nothing like me. Now, my adopted parents, who are my mom and dad, they love me like they did their naturally born sons. Awesome. But I had every excuse to be a victim, and I didn't want to be that. Right. Um, I was always encouraged and taught by my adoptive parents. You know, you can overcome this. And my dad was a great model for that. My dad's father left my grandmother and eight children up in a holler in Eastern Kentucky to go buy bread and milk and never came back. My dad was three years old. And so my grandmother raised eight kids on her own. She worked three jobs. My dad never knew his dad. My dad never had a father. That did not stop my dad from being a great dad. He figured it out. He had every reason to be an abusive alcoholic and he was not. My dad was a great guy and he was my hero. That's awesome. That is so cool. So it's kind of hard to, you know, the, you don't want to be the guy who screws that up. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. So, uh, so I had that motivation is that, you know what? I've seen people overcome some of the worst things. And so you and I've kind of jokingly talked about this, the power of the father-in-law that doesn't believe in you. Um, 
And so my father-in-law, rightfully so, did not believe that I was good enough for his daughter. And he was absolutely right. And I knew that deep down inside. But for 25 years, he was my white whale. And I was going to prove that guy wrong if it killed me. And you and I have kind of, we've joked about this. One of the worst days in my life was about four years ago when my father-in-law told me he was glad that my wife married me. And I was like, no, you can't say that. You're, like, you're taking my away my Moby Dick. You know, Smack I, me. Tell me you hate me again. Yes. <laughs> Captain Ahab cannot be in love or accepted by the whale. It kills the story. See, but this is this is the incredible part for me because some people, there's so many listeners that have been abandoned by their father and mother and, the, and then they circle back around in their teens and their whole life revolves around getting that person, that father figure, mother to say, I'm proud of you, to say, I love you. And then they cry and they're like, I haven't heard that. This is my life's being, finally getting you to say, you're proud of me and you love me. But like, you're the opposite. Like, what? What is that? Do you already have the confidence? Like, are you a guy of faith? Like, what's different about you? Because I've never really heard that angle before. So am I a guy of faith? I hate that question. And the reason why I hate that question is because what does that mean? So, yes, am I a guy of faith? Yeah, I have faith the sun's going to come up tomorrow. And I have faith the moon's going to come out tonight. Um, I have faith that in about two hours, I'm going to be really hungry, but you know what? I think the greater question is, is there something beyond me that I'm banking on? There you, go. you know, you know, you know, I'm here living in Kentucky, you know, it is the thoroughbred capital of the world. Um, and back when they had the Kentucky Derby in September, you know, I believed that, uh, authentic was going to win. So I bet on authentic to show. I hedge my bets. Right. You know, I believe he's going to win, but just in case he doesn't, you know, I'm going to bet a little money on safe. I wasn't banking on authentic to win. I didn't push every dime I have in this world on authentic to win. Right. I have pushed everything I have in this world in my faith as a Christ follower. I am banking on that, not believing in it, not faith in it. I am banking all in everything pushed to the center. Okay. Why? Because I want to say it was because the way you're brought up, like, you know, most people say it's because my parents told me. And then most people have that bad experience with God or a church or a pastor or a mentor or whatever. And they blow it off. Like, I don't want anything to do with that. Why do you believe the way that you believe? How can you push all your chips in on Christ? What, what did he do? Why? So from probably the start of um, first grade all the way up to 20 years of age, I was one of the most hate-filled people you could have ever met. Wow. Hate for people, for life, for yourself, everything? Yeah. You know, I grew up in a time where being um, adopted – and, ha- and being born from two people that weren't married was a bad thing. And I got made fun of. I got um, treated differently. And I had this hatred because 
the person that should have loved me more than anybody in this world Mm. didn't. And I had this huge void in my life, this huge pie-shaped void that could never be filled except with hatred. And then when I was 21 years old, my wife, who was my fiance at the time, led me to Christ. And that hate-filled void was filled with a relationship based on love and joy and peace and hope that has never left me. That's awesome. So it was not your adopted parents that grew up in a Christian church or a Christ follower. No, actually, uh, funny story. Uh, my mom, <laughs> yeah, my mom and her entire side of that family are Catholic. Great people, uh, God-fearing people. My dad and his entire side of the family were Mormon. Great people, God-fearing people. Wow. We never once in my entire life went to church as a family. Interesting. Every Sunday morning, my mom and one of my brothers would go to the Catholic church and my brother and I would go to the Mormon church with my dad because the Mormon church had a basketball league. And in order to play in their basketball league, you had to go to church. So, so are um, you a Mormon? Did you call yourself a Mormon, a Catholic or a, no, I, I don't. So there was at one time in my life when we were young enough where we weren't able to make a choice. So we had to do both. And so I would go to, um, a Catholic, um, kind of education night, like once a week class mm-hmm. every week we would go. And that was like on a Tuesday night. And then we would go to church with my dad. And then it, we got to a point where my mom and dad said, okay, you guys are old enough. You're teenagers now. So about the age of 13, they said, you need to pick. And we're, I'm like, this is like divorced <laughs> parents. I got to pick who I love more, my mom or my dad, you know, whose religion is right. Um, and so I went with my dad because he was my hero uh, the Catholic church wasn't offering me a basketball spot to play on their league team. So, um, yeah. So I would say at that point up to about maybe 16 or 17, I would have considered myself Mormon. Um, and then about 18 is when I really, really went wild, um, drugs, alcohol, uh, all those things. Um, and I, there was no faith, uh, at right. any point then, uh, that was pretty much just, uh, you know, wild card. Right. And then you met your wife and she turned all around. So, I mean, people talk about these God encounters or encounters with Christ. Like for you, like, what was it? Did he, did it something you felt? Is it something you saw? Like, what was it? Well, with her, I saw this person that had something I didn't. Wow. You know, she had had confidence. Right. But she had this peace and she had this, um, loving relationship with her earthly parents, but also she had this loving relationship with Christ. And so she was fulfilled with that. She was comforted by that. And she just had this glow that I didn't have. You know, um, when you walked down the street and you saw her, you wanted to go to the side of the street she was on. You saw me coming down the street. You got the heck out of the way. Well, the sad thing that makes me sad because, you know, obviously I'm a believer in Christ is when, you know, People who are wearing the same Christ t-shirt I am or the banner that I'm wearing, they're the ones that you want to avoid. I don't like that. That Yeah, I don't like that either. It messes up for the rest of us. Um, Did you see anything we talked about? Because, you know, this is a cool story that inspired me um, about faith and about fervent prayer and believing God's nature regardless. This is very important. Regardless if you're a Mormon, Catholic, 
Christian. God is love and he's got principles and he wants people to get better. I've shared with you that both of my two youngest were diagnosed with a rare genetic disease called cystic fibrosis. About a year ago in your office, you told me a story and I started bawling about your brother who was born with cystic fibrosis. Just learned from the first, your, your dad was a Mormon and God healed your brother. Tell me about that story because, and I, I think it's important because, well, God won't heal that person because they're this religion or that person. Because like, dude, there's, there's principles of God that, that work. Share what happened with your brother and your dad. Yeah. So as long as I can remember, God was alive in my house as a child. And so both my parents, if you were to ask them, you know, my dad's been dead a long time, but if you were to ask them, you know, are you a Christ follower? You ask my mom, they would both say yes. God and Christ were alive in our house where the differences kind of split were on the religious part, the worldly part of faith. And so, uh, and I told you this story. Uh, so my father was an auto worker. So we were, we were a low middle-class family at best. We lived in a little two bedroom, one bath house. And so my brother, Greg, who's just one year younger than me, he and I shared a bedroom and my brother, Greg was born with cystic fibrosis. And so my, probably my earliest childhood memory, Matt, is he and I had bunk beds and my brother, Greg, again, this is back in the early seventies. He had to sleep in a oxygenated tent that wouldn't fit on the lower bunk. It had to go on the top bunk because it went almost to the ceiling and because of the pumps and the wires and all that stuff. And so I slept on the, on the lower bunk. So visually, um, was it like a bubble, like a bubble boy type? Thing? Yeah, it was kind of like bubble boy. It was kind of, yeah. I mean, it looked like a bubble boy, a, you know, a, a, a tent on top of the That's bed. Crazy. Um, okay. And so I was on the bottom bunk. And so my dad was an auto worker. So, and we, he lived probably 45 minutes from work. So he would go to work very, very early in the morning, probably four or four thirty AM. And I can remember one of my earliest childhood memories is waking up and my father is kneeling at the end of my bed down by my feet. And he is praying and weeping over my brother. Dude, that's and that happened a lot. You know, I can remember waking up probably once a week and listening to my dad pray and hearing him weep over my brother. Um, and so about, gosh, I guess my brother was probably eight. Hey, can I um, ask you a quick question? Yeah, to yeah, put yeah. a pin right there. Because we've always been brought up, and even I, you know, I don't want my kids to see me cry. I want my boys to see this big, strong man. For you, did that attract you more to your dad, seeing that humble side of him, how he would cry? Or are you like, oh, I can't let my kids see my emotion? You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, so my dad was the emotional of two. My mom is a German-Irish Catholic, and she was a rock. Um, she's buried two husbands in her life. And she's battled breast cancer and lung cancer in the last couple of years. And she's done it with this rock-like um, unpenetrability of her psyche. And so my dad was always the emotional one. Uh, and so it wasn't unusual to see emotion out of my dad. Um, but when my dad wept, it was this humanity, you know, that again, I was a child, so I probably didn't understand what it was. Yeah. But I was never afraid of my dad. You know, I didn't want to disappoint my dad. And so throughout my teenage years, when my dad got mad at something I did, that didn't bother me. When my dad was hurt by something I did, it crushed me. Wow. 
right. and so that, I'd want, I'd that want human, human side of my dad was wasn't attractive to me um and that's why he was my hero and not only because of what he overcame but because of who he was uh the most loving person that i know um and so i guess my brother was eight and um they would go to the doctor with my brother all the time you know children's hospital here in cincinnati is one of the best hospitals in the country uh, has been for a long, long time. We live on the Kentucky side. They would go over to Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Very common. Once a month, he would be over there. And they came back and they said, we're going to go to grandma's house. And I'm like, all right. And I had a, I had, we had a third brother by then. Um, and so we loaded up in the car and we go to grandma's house, kind of impromptu out of the blue. And we get to grandma's house, my dad's mother, and my uncles are there. And I'm like, you know, get to play with my cousins. This is cool. Had no idea. My dad calls everybody in together and they announced that today the doctor said Greg is cured. <laughs> Which, by the way, here we are in 2021. There still is no cure for cystic fibrosis. My two youngest were diagnosed at birth. We have the breathing treatments. We do all the stuff. They're doing phenomenal but technically there is no cure for cystic fibrosis. So to hear that in 1970, what? 79. That he's cured. How did that happen? What was that like? The doctors had no answer. The only answer the doctor could give was this is a miracle. They've never seen it happen. Uh, at least they hadn't to that point. And it was a miracle. And, you know, I don't know what my parents said to the doctors, um, but I'm sure my dad was probably thinking to himself, God heard me. Sure. hundred percent. I mean, how else do you explain something like that? And we've had, personally, we've had so many of those with our kids that, I mean, I think my, one of my biggest victories was Mason, my middles, he had to have his first, um, um, bronchoscopy where they put the camera down there and do all that stuff. And, you know, we were nervous. We were praying all that stuff. And he comes out and he's like, I'm telling you, if it wasn't for his diagnosis at birth, this kid does not have cystic fibrosis. There's nothing in his body that resembles that at all. So it's God's still in the miracle business. I'm telling y'all with yeah. what the doctors told me with him at birth, you know, hearing about how your dad wept. Uh, I remember holding up my son Mason as a baby crying and pleading to God to heal my son because I didn't know if I was going to coach his baseball team, football team, whatever. We'll fast forward. The boy's 13 now. And, uh, He's a freaking stud. I can't keep up with the guy. So God is good, man. He's still in the miracle yes. business, right? Always. Taking the uh, transition. So um, so after that, you grow older, you start this business. Tell me about how, so th that first business failed and then Prolanthropy birthed somehow. Yeah. Let's talk about Prolanthropy. I'm repping the sweatshirt y'all gave me. And um, I have some of my funnest times at your events. Uh, tell me about how does that happen? What did you build? Tell me about how you took your, your passion and you created this. Yeah. So I, I'd always heard that in business, you either need to be first, the best or the cheapest. And I never wanted to be the cheapest. I was blessed with the opportunity to be first and create an industry where we could be best. And so in 2009, when I started Prolanthropy, we had five clients, which meant we were the biggest professional athlete-based 
um, charitable managing company, mm-hmm. we're still the biggest in that space. There's no one that's even remotely close to the size that we are. Yeah, so, boy. You know, and and so what I always wanted was to be best. It helped that we were first, no doubt. Now, there's been a lot of challenges with being first. You know, it would be really easy to create the a competitor to Apple now that they've done all the hard work and the heavy lifting. You know what you need to be. You can hire their people away. Um, I had a friend tell me, I don't know if this is true or not. Uh, he's in the automotive space, and he said that Hyundai or Kia, one of the two, hired a lot of engineers from Audi. And they wanted those engineers to bring to them, how does Audi do things? We never had that. We can't go out and find people that are skilled in a lot of what we do, in parts of what we do, by all means. But in the kind of totality of what we do, we can't. And so um, we were first. It gave us an opportunity that we wouldn't have if we'd have been second, but it created problems too. But I always wanted to be best. And what best to me meant was, one, making sure that this great thing never becomes a bad thing for our clients. Mm-hmm. If our clients want to use their platform. They want to do use that platform to help people who are disadvantaged because of something. Most of them, it's because of a story. And so we talked about Von Miller. Von Miller wants kids to feel great about wearing glasses, and he wants to give them glasses that scream who they're, what their personality is. Mm-hmm. That's his story. That's what his foundation does. You know, we have other clients that have a whole different background and a whole different story, but it's always about really fulfilling the philanthropic vision of that professional athlete. And as we talked about, it's the layer up. It's not just giving away stuff or doing something great in the community. It's the athlete or coach being there and being a part of that. And some of the the amazing things or the most amazing things that we've done have been the intimate things. Um, so Chris Mack is the head coach of the University of Louisville. And a lot of people don't realize that we do this because we don't talk about it a lot. His foundation does amazing big things and Jefferson County Public Schools, back to school, Coach Mack's corners, which are libraries put into schools. But he does this thing that we secretly talk about called the game day program. Mm-hmm. And most people don't know this, but in the Yum Center, where the University of Louisville plays basketball, there's actually a practice gym down, you know, under the in the bowels of the um, <laughs> of the Yum Center, right next to the the home team locker room. It's like a the Denver gym. Airport. What's really underneath there? What's really underneath there? Wow. And so we, for a couple of games a year, four or five games, we'll bring a small group of elementary students and a parent or a chaperone. And we bring 20 of these kids down to the practice gym. That's tight. Right before the game. And Coach Mack comes out and he talks to those kids about working hard, chasing your dreams, setting goals, all of those things that allowed the players he coaches to get to the Division I level. He talks to these kids about. And then we take those kids and go out and sit in primo seats and they get to watch the game. And you know, it's those small, intimate times um, when you see this, the kind of the proverbial light bulb go off yeah. for a kid when one of our clients is talking directly to that kid. Well, uh, one of my favorite memories was this past year. Um, 
we did our first event with you for Darren Waller. He's the tight end of the Raiders. Yeah. Amazing story of overcoming drug addiction. He did not know what he was in for after that first event. The energy, the power, the fun, and and seeing what he was doing for other people, he, I'm not going to say he cried and got emotional, but the look on his face was like beautiful because he was so overwhelmed at yeah. what he was able to do with his platform, tag team with a company like Prolanthropy. I know you, you guys are the best in the business. I mean, you have some of the top athletes in the world. Like we said, Von Miller, uh, Darren Waller, you got... Uh, Kenley Jansen, who is a World Series champion. You got Anthony Davis, who's an NBA champion. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So Prolanthropy definitely is the best. Let me ask you this question because it's sometimes it's tough for people to answer what makes them special. And you are a, a humble guy, but I'm going to ask you anyway. I The Bible says your gift will make room for you and bring you in front of great kings or great people. You got you, Jeff Ginn, uh, you know, thrown away at birth pretty much for a lack of better terms. You weren't wanted. You got ridiculed your entire life. But now here you are in front of the top biggest celebrities and athletes in the world. What's your gift? How did you get here? What do you offer? Um, I think probably the maybe my the gift the thing that i bring to the table is maybe not um being afraid to be rejected or fail so a lot of people call it this entrepreneurial mindset or the entrepreneurial spirit of we're going to do something different i will confess cards on the table i have a hate fueled rage for the status quo i hate things remaining the same. If you read the book, Simon Sinek's book, uh, Start With Why, my why is the why of a better way. I'm always looking for how can we do something better. And um, when I when I look at the not-for-profit world, I don't use the term not-for-profit or non-profit because even a not-for-profit who doesn't make money goes out of business. Right. You have to be able to pay your bills. You have to be able to fund the things that you do to help people. So for-profit business or not-for-profit business, you have to make money. You have to be profitable. You have to be successful. I hate the martyrdom in the not-for-profit world. I hate that, they, that a lot of not-for-profits will reject sound business principles because those guys are for-profit. The best not-for-profits marry both. And so I have this hate-fueled rage for the status quo, and I'm not afraid to fail. And so what are my gifts is that we're always trying things new. We're always trying to innovate, and we have a risk tolerance for failure. How? Because now, I mean, now you have a name. Your company has a name. You are established. You've made millions and millions of dollars for athletes' charities. So you, you already have a good reputation. Before that, or even maybe still now, do you hear more no than you hear yes from people? Um, so I will say we probably hear no about the same amount of time that we used to hear no. Wow. So I don't think um, that either means you're hey, that either means you were really good in the beginning or they're really stupid now. Well, <laughs> this isn't for everyone. Now I'll explain to you why. 
I will say we say no a whole lot more now than we used to. Um, Two athletes, huh? Oh, yeah. 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 Um, because what we do is about compounding what the athlete's already doing. And so what we're able to do, because we, we have professional fundraisers, professional media, professional marketing, all of those things are part of what we provide. They're all part of our team here, is an athlete that's doing X and donating Y, we can compound that nine, 10 times. So we can multiply their current impact that they're doing by nine, 10 times, but they have to be doing something. And a lot of guys don't want to, and, and they're, and in order you. to do that, Matt, a guy has to give a little bit of treasure, a little bit of time and a little bit of talent. They have to give those three things, not in space. They just got to give those things. And some people aren't willing to do that. You know, some, some, some people would say, Hey, I just want to write a check and I don't want to do time. Right. And some people will say, Hey, I don't want to do time and I don't want to do talent. And some will say, Hey, I don't want to write a check. And it's like, no, you have to do all three of those. You don't have to do it a lot, but you have to be willing to give all three. And a lot of people aren't willing to give all three. Right. So let me ask you this. One of my last questions for you before I let you go. I appreciate you so much coming on today. That's all right. Uh, Love it. 2020 was the worst year for so many people, especially us in the events business. On average, I did about 75 events a year. 12 to 14 of those would be with your company, Prolanthropy. But in 2020, I did 14 events. um, And I think about half of those were with your company. How did you guys do it? How did you survive? Because, I mean, if if you take a guy like me, let's just say, 90% 90% of my business in the events went away in 2020. Uh, Prolanthropy was about 10% of the events that I did normally. But in 2020, Prolanthropy was about 50% of the events I did, which means you guys found a way to make it happen. Your doors are still open. You guys are making it happen. You're changing the game. I think we even had one for David Johnson, who's the running back of the Houston Texans. And it was one of our biggest ones. And just for those of you guys who don't know, like new new guy in town for a team that finished four and twelve. Not a lot of exciting stuff happening for Houston football at that time. But David Johnson's foundation with Prolanthropy crushed it in the worst pandemic in modern history. How did we do it? How did you do it? So Matt, uh, in March of last year. I made a promise to God that if he got us through, I would give him all the credit. Wow. And um, I would be remiss if I didn't live up to that promise and be a man of my word and say, God got us through. That's awesome. We had a great 2019 record year in 2019 for our clients and for our firm. That helped us in 2020. Um, God opened doors in 2020 that allowed us to survive. And I am confident that God will do the same thing in 2021. Um, You know, this isn't my company. I'm a steward um, of what God's provided. And I believe I'm held accountable and will be held accountable for the stewardship that I actually provide uh, to this company. Um, And, you know, we did things different. I mean, there's no question. I mean, you know, we could have folded up our tents and gone home and cried. So many two months we were locked down, but we didn't, we dug in, we got better. 
we pivoted, we made some huge strides on uh, processes, procedures, systems, uh, on how we do what we do. And then we pivoted and we pivoted what seemed like weekly. Um, we pivoted to virtual, we pivoted to hybrid, we pivoted to uh, campaigns, we pivoted in a lot of ways and we'll continue to pivot. We learned a lot in 2020 that can be actually will better us as a company for 2021. Sure. And expands our offerings for our clients. Well, for so, a guy like you who loves change and actually hates the norm, not that any of us wanted 2020, but when you have that mindset of, I don't know what's going to happen, but whatever happens, I'm going to pivot. I'm going to be ready and I'm going to adjust. Those are the ones who end up on top and find a way to make it happen instead of getting so comfortable in your comfort that when this change happens, most people look up and be like, oh God, why did you do this to me? You could just see your mentality is way different. You know, we were going to go down swinging. We were going to go down praying. There you go. And you actually rose in 2021's looking up, baby. I cannot wait to see you again. Give you a big chest bump. I don't think I've ever given you a chest bump yet. We've seen me do it to other people in the crowd. Can I give you a chest bump when I see you? You can give me a chest bump. Yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> I love you, man. I appreciate you so Likewise. much, Jeff. Any, any, any last words for me or the viewers? Like the Jerry Springer last nuggets, last thoughts. Jeff gets yeah, so um, there is a quote that's above um, the doorways that exits both of my kids' bedrooms. They're adults now, so one's married and out, and one's in college. But the quote above the door um, says that both faith and fear require you believe in something you cannot see. Ooh. You choose. <laughs> I wish you could see Eli's face right now. Eli's doing this behind the t behind the monitor. Say that again one more time, and we're going to end on that. Both faith and fear require you believing something you cannot see. You choose. There it is. Mic drop on Level Up with Matt Rogers and Jeff Ginn. Thank you guys so much for tuning in again today, and thank you so much, Jeff, for coming. I love you, man. It's been a blast. Thanks for having me. Peace out.